Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm your host, Danny, and with me today is another special guest. This is uh, one of the other theological giants that I've had the privilege of really just reading a lot of his stuff on Facebook through a couple different groups and looking into the ministries that he has as well. This is none other than Dr. Charlie Bing. Dr. Bing, or Charlie, as uh, he likes to be called, is, matter of fact, a master's of theology and a doctorate in philosophy from Dallas Theological. He was uh, really one of the founding uh, think tank, the founding members of the Free Grace Alliance and actual founder of Grace Life Ministries, if I'm not misunderstood as well. Is that correct? So, Charlie, I appreciate you being with us. Is there anything that you'd love to just uh, share with us, maybe about your ministry yourself, anything else before we actually dive into the questions? Yeah, well, uh, appreciate that little ministry resume. And I I was in pastoral ministry for about 25 years. Uh, so I so I'm familiar with that side of the ministry, and I started Grace Life uh, while I was in the ministry with the church's blessing, so that I could do some things outside the church that people wanted to see. I'd like to mention I've been married, uh oh, 41 and a half years, nine grandchildren, one on the way. You said uh oh, what was the uh oh? Well, because I got to count the years all the time. You know how that goes. I think it's 41 and a half years, be 42 in January. Um, so that's a little bit about me, I, and I live in Texas. So how's the weather in Texas right now? Actually, today about 85, you know, for the middle of October, that's warmer than normal, but you never know. My my son ended up going to college out in Montana State, and we're here in Alabama, and he's talking about having like 18 inches of snow, and and we got some pretty nice weather, so I I bet he's a little bit jealous. And yet when I was in Montana this summer, it was hotter than Texas at times. I've seen that too. So, but again, thank you for your time. I know you're a very busy person, very busy man. So, uh, if you want to explain some of these questions, however long, however short, concise, whatever, I uh, do understand that uh, this interview is not going to be able to do justice to all of these questions or really any of them. And so, I will have a link in the description if anybody wants to go ahead and look at more further detailed information as far as the questions, the passages, things like that. Check out the descriptions and we'll get full uh, information clarity on that. Uh, a couple first softballs right off the bat. Could you first explain what is free grace theology? Well, first, I would say that free grace theology is a noticeable redundancy because why would you have to tell people that grace is free? Well, it's actually because some people don't understand grace in that way. But free grace theology is just an understanding, starting with the definition of grace, which comes from the word gift. And a gift, of course, is something that's free. If you pay for it or are obligated for it, then this is not a, a gift. So it starts there. It's absolutely free. And when we look at grace in the Bible, the, it, the word, word free grace is not ap- actually used, but Romans 3.24 says we're justified freely by his grace. So the word there describing grace is the word freely or justified. It actually modifies justified, but it's freely. And uh, Paul said that by way of emphasis, because he's just finished a discussion about you couldn't save yourself by your own effort and law. And uh, of course, we're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. That would have been enough. But then he says, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So he emphasizes the freeness of God's grace there, too. And the reason we call it free grace theology is because anytime you're in a theological discussion, you have to define your terms more carefully sometimes. Like I use as an example, the debate about inerrancy used to be enough to say the word of God. But then we had to say the inspired word of God. And then we had to say the inerrant inspired word of God. Then we had to say the verbally inerrant 
inspired word of God. You have to keep adding the adjectives until people understand what you're trying to say. So people talk about cheap grace, costly grace, but there's only one kind of grace. Those terms aren't in the Bible. It's free grace. And if anything, that that description of grace is in the Bible. It means that we're saved absolutely unconditionally by what God did through his son, Jesus Christ for us and not by anything that we can do. So free grace theology starts there. And then that makes salvation through faith alone because faith is the only way you can receive a gift. You can't receive it by working for it. It ceases to become a gift. The Bible says Romans eleven six. 6. Um, and then, I mean, we, there's a lot of extrapolations and attendant uh, uh, propositions that go along with free grace theology, but that's the core of it. Grace is absolutely free. Okay. Really the one passage that comes to my mind too is uh, Romans chapter four, when he's talking about uh, working, if any man works for it, it's no longer of grace, but it's of debt and it's something that he earned. And so definitely uh, thanks for that explanation. Uh, I love when you mentioned the fact of having to define your terms. I mean, as an apologist, you know, that's one of the basic rules 101. You have to define the terms. No, we were all on the same understanding. But uh, with that being said, a lot of people seem to believe that free grace is a fairly new theological position. Is that true? If it's not true, how do we, where do we see free grace theology maybe in the early church and throughout the church history? Daniel, let me put it this way. Nobody in history has ever been saved apart from free grace. Right. So it's as old as the gospel itself and older than the gospel, of course. But when we get to the New Testament, uh, Jesus taught salvation was absolutely free, as simply as John 3.16. And on through the New Testament, that truth is supported. So free grace theology, the term, if you're referring to the term, it may be a recent term, but the discussion has been since the time of Christ and the Pharisees arguing about the law. And, and Paul with the Galatians arguing about uh, the role of works and salvation. So that's really this, the discussion. And that discussion has taken different forms through history. And you can trace it through the church fathers. And, uh, but I, the term free grace was used by a number of church fathers. I think I recently read an article that, that showed where it was used by uh, fathers uh, talking about salvation being absolutely free or using the term free grace. But, you know, one interesting book I came across a couple of years ago, it's uh, it's called Making Heretics, Militant Protestantism and Free Grace in Massachusetts, 1636 to 1641 by Michael Winship. It's not a popular read. It's like a doctoral dissertation, but he traces what's called the Free Grace Controversy in the first colonies of Massachusetts. John Cotton described it as a dispute about the uh, the glory of God's free grace. That's how John Cotton, who was at the center of it, described it. And so that's why he titled the book, The Free Grace Controversy, subtitled The Free Grace Controversy. So it goes back to then, uh, when the term was used in a modern way, uh, you know, uh, there was a beginning, the, there were a number of branches of people who taught what I would say is free grace. Maybe they didn't describe it that way. But I think in the last uh, 30, <clears throat> 30 or so, 40 years, people have been talking about free grace as opposed to Arminianism, which brings works in the gospel, and Calvinism, which brings works at the end of the gospel. So what do you describe that view in the middle? I would like to call it just Biblicism, but th that seems arrogant because they would want to say that too. But we call it free grace because we emphasize the freeness of God's grace. 
So it's not a re- not a re- recent discussion, uh, but just maybe a recent term. No, I, I definitely like that. I mean, you hit it right off the bat. I mean, the grace has always been free, you know, from the time of Christ. And, and even prior to that in the Old Testament, when they're looking forward to the Messiah, it's always been by faith, never of works. You know, the blood of bulls and goats can never, you know, take away the sins forever. You know, they're looking forward to a Messiah and doing it in faith. I appreciate that. Uh, I believe as Zane Hodges that people love to pen as like the father of the free grace movement, if I'm not mistaken. But thanks for your clarity on that. And that book, you know, I'd love to maybe get that in the descriptions there. I've heard that before about uh, the early original colonies and the free grace discussion that had mm-hmm. happened there. And so I forgot about that. So thanks for bringing that up. You had mentioned uh, previously uh, cheap grace. Could you explain what's meant uh, when people say cheap grace, easy believism, or any of these other uh, like sort of snide remarks as far as the free grace position? I'll tell you what I think they mean um, from my reading, uh, the ones who refer to cheap grace are talking about uh, those Christians who abuse the God, the grace of God after they're saved, or at least professing Christians, and, and who don't live a godly life. And, and we all know that's true. And one of the weaknesses of the church almost anywhere, but in America, we see it. And so they say it's cheap grace. You know, uh, you're not you're not living in appreciation of the grace that God has given you, they might say, um, or you're, I would use, but the word cheap grace is never in the Bible, nor costly grace or easy believism. So I would say they're abusing grace um, or there's other biblical terms uh, as well. Um, you know, holding the grace of God in vain, something like that. But um, so cheap grace also sometimes refers to uh uh, so it refers to people who are not living a godly life, who seem to be taking grace for granted. Of course, grace should generate a response of godliness, and it's not ungodliness. Uh, and I think the term came, uh, it was used quite a bit, uh, uh, the opposite term, costly grace, by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who saw in his Lutheran church in Germany during the time of the Nazis, a lot of Christians who were actually supporting the Nazi party. And that they weren't really living up to what they professed, he felt. And so he used the term costly grace that you need to take a stand uh, and, and really follow Christ. Um, his theology probably did tend towards um, uh, believing that he had works mixed in there. But that's where it popularized the term costly grace, as far as I can tell. And so cheap grace, I, I forget if he used the term or not, but that, that would be the opposite of it. What about the term easy believism? I've heard a lot of preachers today use that term as well. Yeah, that that it's unfortunate and uh, unfortunate they use that term because first, <laughs> first let me just start out by saying I don't use the term easy believism. I I don't own that at all, but I do own the term simple believism. So there's a difference between the two words. Easy means without difficulty. Simple means singular. Okay, so. When I say simple believism, I mean, there's only one thing you have to do to be saved, and that's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture teaches. By easy believism, what they're saying is anybody can just raise their hand, go forward in church, make a profession of faith, say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in the death and resurrection of Christ and be saved. But that we're not saying that at all. We're, we're saying that the gospel is a person believes uh, that Jesus died for their sins, paid the penalty for their sins. He rose from the dead. And as the son of God, he made a promise that if you 
believe in him, you have everlasting life. But think about that. That's not easy to believe. It's not easy to believe for some people that they're sinners, that they need to be saved. It's not easy to believe that Jesus is the son of God or that he, his death could pay for all their sins. It's not easy to believe he rose from the dead. It's not easy to believe that what he did 2000 years ago could apply to today. It's not easy to believe that he loves me enough to keep that promise. It's so, I mean, it's very difficult. You know, I, it's easy to fall out of an airplane, but uh, it's difficult to learn how to skydive. There's a difference. And, um, yeah, but it, it's simple to fall out of an airplane. Is that we're, that's a singular thing. Maybe that's not the best example. But but it's, it, it's easy to fall out, but it's not easy to skydive, I guess is what I want to say. Easy make, makes it sound like it's, uh, you know, something you can just do uh, without thinking. But the accusation is behind that accusation is that and, and it is partly true that there are many people who just profess Christianity in some way, you know, at a church camp or whatever. And and then they go on to live a ungodly life. And my question is, well, were they truly saved? First of all, uh, we have to only determine that by talking to them. And then we can't even know then for sure. I don't think only they and God know for sure. So uh, it, it's a charge I reject. There's nothing uh, that we preach that is easy to believe, um, but it is simple. Yeah, I appreciate your clarification on that and the distinction between simplicity and ease, because like you said, it's. It is not easy to believe something that happened 2000 years ago and trust your eternity uh, with this as well. And Jesus told doubting Thomas, if you will, you know, uh, blessed are you because you have seen and believe, but blessed are those who have seen and not yet believe or who I believe and have not yet seen. And so definitely there's a big distinction there. And yeah, so, and again, you know, I might, can I just add that there are some books that have come out with the titles like uh, hard to believe, but what they're meaning is it's, it's not just simple but it's complicated and hard and you got to do all these things and there's another book called salvation is not as easy as you think um another book called salvation by allegiance yeah, so uh, you have to pledge your loyalty to jesus as king and, and so they make it just more and more complicated with an endless uh list of commitments you have to make <laughs> And that's actually a good segue into the next question, because uh, really that's just laying the groundwork and the foundations before we get into some really uh, deep stuff is, so understanding free grace, understanding origins, if you will, uh, could you explain a little bit about lordship salvation? Now, when I first started studying it, I thought it was simply just a Calvinistic term, but realizing it, it, it's much broader, uh, if you will, than that, uh, from my understanding, could you explain what is lordship salvation? Yeah, lordship isn't, I think a lot of it comes from Calvinistic roots, but you can also find it in Arminian camp for sure. It's almost a default position for anybody that really doesn't understand free grace. So the lordship salvation is saying that uh, for someone to be saved and to believe in Jesus Christ as your savior involves a commitment to surrender your life to him or to obey and serve him with your life. So in other words, you're surrendering to Jesus as Lord or, and master of your life in a subjective sense. Of course, you know, I believe in the Lordship of Christ and it, it, he couldn't save, of it, save me if he wasn't Lord. But that's an, an objective truth. But Lordship of Salvation teaches it has to be a subjective commitment to him in order to be saved. And then there's, again, a lot of things that are uh, attendant truths that come with that 
that, but that's the core of it. Does this really Jesus as master? Does this really go into? Uh, I think it's your teaching as far as a truth and b truth. Yes, it, it takes us there because um, what lordship salvation? If okay, let me let me explain. A truth is what I call salvation truth, and b truth is what I call uh, discipleship truth. Or we could say a truth is justification truth, b truth is sanctification truth, or a truth is. Um, uh salvation be truth is christian growth okay so we separate those two so what lordship salvation does is they take the conditions for sanctification and especially for discipleship where jesus said deny yourself take up your cross and follow me to hate your father mother brother and sister you, you know you have to abandon everything you and all these characteristics of a disciple and it puts them into the a truth side and says those are conditions for salvation well you immediately if I hope can see the error in that you've now required a person to do things or even making a commitment is doing something and that compromises the well, it extinguishes the, the free grace of God because it can't be compromised. Uh, the free grace of God is mutually exclusive of any kind of works or commitment or merit on my part. So Lordship Salvation brings all that be truth in into salvation and it's all because of a i think a misunderstanding of some key passages and what jesus was teaching disciples so let me put it this way they say that uh, every christian every true christian is a disciple there are no christians who are not disciples by virtue of the fact that they had to make these commitments to be become a christian whereas i would say disciples are not born they're made because jesus was constantly challenging his own disciples with discipleship challenges and asking them to pay a, a greater price. And he did that throughout their three years of ministry. No, that's, that's big, you know, conflating justification with sanctification, like you're saying. Uh, starting to go down the deep route, if you will, uh, understanding free grace theology, understanding lordship salvation. Now a big word that maybe not a lot of people are familiar with, but maybe the principle they are, uh, antinomianism. Can you explain what antinomianism is and what does free grace, uh, what does the free grace teaching believe the purpose of the law of Moses is now in today's age? Yeah, I think most people understand the term antinomianism as uh, against the law or without law, or which would actually be anomianism. So we can play around with that little antecedent there, anti, but they would say that free grace teaches that there's no use for the law. We don't have we don't uh, um, have any moral standards, basically. You know, since we're free under grace, uh, I think they've, of course, they've they've created a straw man and mischaracterized the situation. Uh, I think what the Bible teaches is not that we're against the law, because the Bible clearly says Paul says it's holy, it's good, it restrains evil. What's wrong with that? Um, I like what a friend of mine, uh, he kind of invented a term. I've not heard anybody else use it anyway. He calls it um, necronomian, necronomianism, which in necro means dead. So dead to the law. Now, the Bible does teach that. It teaches that like Romans 10, 4, we're dead to the law. Romans 6, 14, we're not under the law. Romans 7, 4. Uh, we are dead to the law. That means we are no longer under the, mos the requirements of the Mosaic law doesn't mean the law is bad it doesn't mean that we can't learn from the law uh, 
we, if we understand the Mosaic law as a representation of God's holy standards in a way that God could constitute the nation of Israel, lead them into worship, lead them into fellowship with him, and uh, give them a way of uh, expressing worship to him and, and, and through sacrifices and so forth. It was very important for the nation of Israel. You can't have a country without a constitution. But when you look at the Old Testament law under Moses, you see things that were in existence before him. Cain and Abel knew to sacrifice. Abraham knew to tithe. So there are moral principles that represent the upright standards of the perfect standards of God that were codified differently before the law. Then they were codified or put into the code of the, the law of Moses. Then Jesus came and said, I came to fulfill the law. And, uh, and that's what he did. And that's why it says we are no longer under the law, but under grace, because there's a new code now. And the new code is called the law of Christ or the royal law. Um, let's see, the, law, the royal law is used in James 2.8, the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. And Jesus said, you know, I have a new commandment that you love one another. And Galatians and Jesus himself taught that when you when you love your neighbors yourself and you love God with all your heart, you fulfill the law and the prophets. So the new code is not a list of regulations that we have to keep in order to be blessed, but it's it's a commandment to love one another because we are blessed. So you see the motive under grace is different from the motive under law. The, the law says do this and you'll be blessed. Grace says you've been blessed. So why don't you do this? It's no longer an obligation. It's not a have to, it's a want to. And, uh, <clears throat> but we learn from the law because we can learn the moral principles. Those, those certainly apply today. And most of them are, the moral principles are repeated in the New Testament, but we don't sacrifice animals and so forth. Some people like to segregate the Old Testament law into moral, social, and um, uh, ritual or whatever, ceremonial. It's never done in the scriptures. It's always presented as a unit and, and described in the New Testament as a unit. So we're not under any of the regulations of the law of Moses, but the principles are still there. You love your neighbor as yourself. And anything that violates that violates God's righteous standards. So on the other hand now, uh, so the accusation implies that people who believe in free grace can do anything that they want, that we don't have any laws. And in a sense, theologically, that's true. We are free. Paul says we are free. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And that's how he answers the objection. Can I, should I just go ahead and send Romans 6? Uh, he answers it twice by saying uh, we're under grace. We're in Christ. We're not under the law. But then he goes on at the end of chapter 6 to teach that there are consequences to sin. And that's what free grace should always teach alongside of free grace. Because otherwise we'll always get charged with being teaching license. But the Bible teaches that uh, Christians should be accountable, responsible. And that there is a judgment seat of Christ. And that's a very important doctrine in free grace theology. And that, we, and that we have a higher motive to serve God. And we love him because he first loved us. Now, now Daniel, here's a question I like to ask people. I'm going to actually ask you a question here. Okay. I, I quiz everybody. Have you ever met someone who said, I believe in free grace and I can do whatever I want. And so I'm going to go out and sin. I can't imagine that I've thinking back to my experiences someone that was bold enough to say no i've never heard anybody say that that believed in free grace i have not either i've and as i asked that question i think only one person so far has answered it yes i know a guy that said that i'm gonna go and get divorced or whatever because god will forgive me but here's my point 
I've not met anybody like that, but I've met thousands and thousands and thousands of people who say, I've been saved by grace. I want to serve God. So you see, it's really a canard. It's, it's kind of a red herring argument that, uh, or a straw man argument, whatever logical fallacy you want to use um, that, they, that they use. It's, it's, I understand the motive behind it, but it's just not true. I don't find anybody claiming that free grace gives us a license to sin. And um, well, anyway, yeah, I'll just say that. No, no, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, like I said, thinking about it and talking to people about the grace of God and the freedom we have in Christ victory. I've never once come across somebody who was like, oh, cool. So I can go do this. No more. I've regularly heard people be like, man, he's done so much. So now I want to live differently, you know, but then comes the aspect of, like you said, your B truth is what does that look like? Now it comes a process of discipleship and helping them understand uh, stuff like that. But I will say, can I also use that term necronomianism? I think it's a good term and we ought to start using it because that's what, that's what the Bible teaches. I like that. I mean, looking in dead faith with James chapter two, 14 through 26 and uh, the word necros in Greek, you know, used to, to explain that. Uh, I really like that. So I'm going to put that one in my, in my toolkit. Well, let me uh, give credit then to my friend, Fred Librand, who wrote a book about James too, actually called back to faith uh, for using, I heard it first from him. He suggested the term. <laughs> Awesome. If I, if I find a link for that, I'll put it in the description as well and uh, definitely get that out there. But I really like that. And uh, words, words have meaning. And uh, I think a lot of people get lost in translation with certain words. So oh, uh, yeah. Dr. Ryrie used to say to us, he said, uh, theology is all about definitions. And it's true. Theology and apologetics, both, both the same, same exact thing. You have got to define the terms, you know, talk to a Mormon. They understand grace. They understand faith, uh, eternal life, salvation. But if they were to define it, they're going to define it totally different. Yes, and so why, why are they saying they believe in grace? They don't because they haven't truly defined what they mean. But anyways, that's a video for another time. Uh, one of the interesting things that I've studied and, and uh, looked at, there are passages, whether it's in Ephesians or Galatians, talking about uh, no liar, thief, whoremonger, uh, on and on, will ever inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, but there's plenty of references of talking about entering the kingdom. Is there a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom? And if so, could you explain a little bit what it is? Well, you know, that's that's an area that I would like to study more myself because I have, I have a lot of theological friends in the free grace movement that are... Uh, different sides of this and, and, and somewhat in the middle. And I guess I'm somewhat in the middle because it, it's pretty clear sometimes that the scripture speaks of an inheritance as something that we earn and, uh, and enjoy as a reward in heaven. Um, I, I, I think of the book of Hebrews. I mean, there's so many verses we would have to look at to put it all together. It sometimes speaks of uh, uh, entering heaven and, and seems to use that intending in the same way as inherit, like in the rich young ruler uh, parable, uh, in, in the rich young ruler parable, I think it is, uh, is it Mark and Matthew who use the word inherit and Luke that uses the word when the disciple, when the rich young ruler is asking, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? I think Luke said, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then the discussion afterwards is the disciples say, well, how can anybody be saved after Jesus talks to the rich young ruler and tells him how 
they forsake everything. So it seems to be used in a soteriological sense there only. Uh, but there are other passages that seem to use it in a reward sense. So I look at it this way, that uh, some people view inherit as a look at, um, let's say, the hev heaven or the kingdom or the uh, eternity as a place to enjoy your blessings. And in that sense, it, it is an inheritance, um, but it includes, of course, entrance into heaven. Uh, some references, I think, just refer to entering heaven just as, as merely getting in. So, there, there's, you know, there's a, I don't know what I'm trying to think of an illustration off the cuff. You have a ticket to get into a concert, but you say, I'm really going to enjoy the con concert. Well, you're, that implies that you have a ticket to get into the concert. I think it's the same way with the word inherit. As I look at the uses in the scriptures, uh, sometimes it refers to that ticket to get in. Sometimes it refers to uh, enjoying the blessings after you get in. I hope that's a good illustration because I just thought that up. But no, um, that was good. That was good. Appreciate. Yeah, it depends on the text that you're using, and I and when you talk about First Corinthians six, Galatians five, and Ephesians four, four, five, where it talks about those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. There's different views of that. Some say that Christians who do these things won't earn a reward in heaven. That's one view. And I used to hold that view. I've kind of swung to another view that I think explains it better. And that those who do these things are not going into heaven. So the argument is implied. Why are you doing? You don't want to do these things as Christians because they're not going to heaven. That's what characterizes unsaved people. And I think you can develop that argument from the text as I do in my book. No, I've... Uh... I looked at it before as far as like the inheritance. I was actually looking on my phone on Blue Letter Bible as far as the uh, parallel passages and the young rich ruler. I've never noticed that before. So I want to look at that as well. I've looked at it really thinking of, because I think the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven also is sometimes uh, misunderstood uh, by a lot of people. When I think of the word kingdom, I think of the Greek word. I don't know necessarily how to pronounce it, but basalia. Or whatnot, and really giving an idea of an authority, if you will. And then I look at like the parable of the, of the cities, if you will, and being able to, uh, you know, have a reward of maybe being the ruler over a city or a region, something like that. So, like you, I, I don't know where exactly where I stand on the difference between entering and inheriting, but I definitely want to look at that passage, parallel passage with the young rich ruler, because I don't think I've ever noticed that. So, thank you. Well, you know, what we're going to find as we probably get into some other questions is that. I define for you the core of free grace theology, but within our group, we have different interpretations and way of understanding things. And so there are certain core truths about free grace that I hold solidly and I'll die on that hill, you know, that grace is free, that we're, our salvation is secure, that we can be absolutely sure, fully assured of our salvation. But when you talk about things like in, in, what does inheritance mean, there's different opinions within our group and they're good discussions to have. And I can be influenced on those. I can, you know, I'm leaning towards what I just said, uh, but I can be influenced one way or the other. I, I like to have the discussions. I'm not threatened by them and they shouldn't be divisive at all. Never. Hey, Amen. I, I appreciate that. And really goes back to the saying, I don't know who originally coined it, you know, but uh, uh, unity and essentials, liberty and non-essentials and grace overall type deal. Martin and, Luther, and, I think it's credited with that oh, oh sorry no i'm just Martin kidding <laughs> but uh re regardless you know it is definitely a truth where i think too many times people want to die on their doctrine when 
that doctrine, you know, may have good discussions on both sides of the aisle, you know, but like you said, there's definitely some things that we will want to die on the hill, you know, and, and so I appreciate that. Uh, coming along those lines, one passage that has always somewhat troubled me, I'm trying to understand it myself, is Revelation 22, 14 verses, uh, 22 verses 14 and 15, where there's a reference to a location outside the city of New Jerusalem. So if we're looking at Revelation 22 and seeing New Jerusalem come down out of heaven uh, like a bride adorned for her husband, uh, this would be after the Messianic kingdom during the eternal order. And so New Jerusalem's coming down. And then in verses 14 and 15, right at the end of Revelation, it says that there are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and so outside this city. And if this is in the eternal order, after the new Jerusalem comes down, this would have taken place after the lake of fire. Uh, so how do you understand this passage? Am I off a little bit? Uh, could you explain it, who the people are? And is it saying that there's going to be people in the eternal order that's outside the city of New Jerusalem? Like sort of it's like a blessing or a reward to go into the city. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it, that is a, a difficult passage. Um, I'm comparing it to chapter 21, verse 8, where uh those who are called basically the same thing, cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, shall have their part in a lake of fire. So we know that, that those terms are used of unsaved people. So I, I would apply this to, in chapter 22, to unsaved people. And I don't have a complex explanation for it, except that uh, uh, I don't know how best to explain the uh, chronological aspect of it, which I think is what you're getting at. But uh, in the New Jerusalem, of course, there'll only be saved people. And I think when he talks about outside, I think he means not outside of just the city itself, um, but outside of, of God's kingdom work uh, that the city, you know, represents. And, and he's just saying that there are those who are have, are saved and have the privileges to the city. And then there are those who are outside described as such dogs and so forth as uh, Revelation 21 uses the term they're destined for the lake of fire. So there are two, two eternal destinations. One involves the New Jerusalem and one involves um, the lake of fire. And of course, the readers of chapter 22 without chapter breaks in the New Testament would immediately associate those terms with chapter 21 <laughs> because they didn't have the chapters to confuse us. Uh, they would just be reading along and say, oh, okay, so that's the destiny of the lake of fire. They're outside of God's work. I don't know if you want that's where the technical aspect about the chronology and the kingdom, uh, I'd like to think through a little bit more, but they're outside of what God is do, doing and plan for his people. That probably doesn't answer your um, more. It, ac it actually more does. Nuance. From what you were just saying right now, it's like, you know, looking at the passage, listen to what you're saying. And I think I'm getting too hung up on the chronological aspect as, as opposed to looking at verse number six in chapter 22 where it says, and he said unto me, these things are faithful and true. And the Lord God of holy prophets uh, and his angels to show unto you the servants of things which must shortly be done. And then he talks about these, uh, behold, I come quickly. And so to me, it also looks like uh, I just thought of this when you're talking is this part could be a summation. 
you know, in the fact, like you said, the same terminology is used in chapter one, referring to those that are cast into the lake of fire. And that, like you said, yes, if you're in the lake of fire, you're obviously outside of New Jerusalem. And so this is really a summary of what's actually been taught. And uh, those people are not going to get the blessings of these three, behold, I come quickly, that Jesus talks about. So that's great, great synthesis there. I think you're on the right trail. It's not he is summarizing the book, drawing it to a close and showing us that there's two destinies. Um, and it's more of a general truth than a, a, de- uh, a discernment of the exact times and so forth. So I, that's kind of where I have it. Well, I appreciate that. So that, that was actually, I, I'm pretty right now sold on that understanding of it. And I finally got clarification on that. So uh, I appreciate that. So that was uh, good. Your, your insight was good. Yeah. Uh, I didn't use the word summary, but that's what he's doing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, uh, so sticking with the idea of like, like, like a fire, uh, the term outer darkness, I've heard a lot of people say that this is a common term for hell. Is it always used in reference to hell? What is a like, uh, outer darkness? <laughs> well, it's only used by Matthew. It's used three times there. Okay. Um, I have my view, but again, it, it's not, it's the one I lean toward. And I wouldn't die for it. And we have discussions within the free grace community about the meaning of outer darkness. Um, we don't get a lot of a lot of help except from the context. So I think the context is always important. It's used in Matthew, Matthew 8 and verse 12 about the sons of the kingdom. Um, and some people think that that refers to uh, uh, believers, I mean, unbelievers, uh, they can't, it can refer to unbelievers because the sons of the kingdom would be the Jews, and this would the un, unbelieving Jews would be thrown into the um, outer darkness or led into outer darkness. Um, but the same term is used in Matthew thirteen thirty eight of the uh, um, tares, and um, I don't know how Matthew thirteen thirty eight says it. Let me take a, a quick look. It's been a while. That so place. I know out of, I got the King James, he said 1328. Yeah. An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, uh, will thou gather up the tares? You root up also the wheat with them. Yeah. Um, so, well, the, uh, the term sons of the kingdom is not used there. I don't see. I guess maybe I didn't know where I was going with that. I think the word. Uh, well, service. in verse 42, it does mention and shall cast them in the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, which is a common term used for the outer darkness. Um, yeah. Verse 38, 38, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the terrors are the children of the wicked one. Yeah, there you go. Um, verse 38. So, the tares are the children of the wicked one, and um, the fields were the good seed of the sons of the kingdom. So the tares can't refer to, un, I mean, believers. They have to refer to unbelievers. So, um, and it's contrasted with the sons of the kingdom. So, sons of the kingdom seems to be um, believers there, not just the Jewish people. Okay, I guess that's my point. Um, and you know, you, when we get to um, another use of it, which is in uh, Matthew 22, um, the parable of the wedding feast, um, 
we we have a man invited to a wedding feast. I mean, uh, you know, well, Jesus makes an invitation, which is obviously to the Pharisees and the scribes, and they reject it. And so he goes and says, go out to the highways and invite everybody. And so people come to the wedding feast and they are there, but one man doesn't have the proper garments. And Jesus, uh, it says, um, take them out, lead them out, throw them into outer darkness. Now the word for throw out, or I don't know how it's translated uh, in the in the parable, but it, it doesn't need it doesn't necessarily mean cast out. It can mean lead out, just take them out. So and it's interesting that you said um, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is often associated with uh, outer darkness. Well, if you only have three mentions of outer darkness, <laughs> you don't have a lot. Of, you don't have a lot of mentions of weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it, it is mentioned with in conjunction with outer darkness. So I'll give you that. Um, but evidently, we, you know, what we have is there's different understandings of the parables. Let me just address that. Some see the parables, Matthew 22 through 25, um, addressing the Jews. And they're all about being prepared for Jesus's coming. They all have that common theme. And some people think it's all about the Jewish nation and the return of Jesus Christ. And I really appreciate that view. And I heard a great presentation of that view recently that's gonna make me think and, uh, and revisit it and check out my, my arguments. So some people don't like to apply these truths to the church and to believers. So casting out and out of darkness and, and the other view, if it was involving the Jews would mean that they're, they're lost, they're going to hell and, and the weeping and gnashing of teeth would be their torment perhaps. Um, there are some who, and I lean this way, apply it to the church because in Matthew chapter 16, it's not like it's out of context. Jesus said the church is coming. I'm building to build the church. And, um, and the parables, especially in, in Matthew 24, is after the rapture. And what takes place after the rapture is uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, where we give an account um, for our lives and how we did. So it's not a matter of entering the kingdom that's in view, but it's a matter of giving account and being prepared when, when we're taken up, when we are raptured up and being before the Lord and presenting ourselves. So this man, for example, in Matthew 22 at the wedding feast, he's not wearing the proper garments. Um, well, Matthew 19, I don't know, Revelation 19 talks about the garments or the righteous acts of the saints. There are other scriptures that talk about garments as, you know, the righteousness of justification, but uh, Revelation 19 talks about the garments as the righteous acts of the saints. And then it was his responsibility to wear the garments. They weren't given to him by the host. So that kind of makes me think of this man representing someone in the church who just wasn't prepared properly for the wedding feast. He's in the wedding, but the feast was a central celebration at a certain time in the wedding. And so he's there in the wedding. He's in the kingdom, but he's not necessarily enjoying the feast the same way everybody else does. He's sitting on the edge because of course the feast would be a lit up area. The light has diminished at some point and he's sitting a little bit on the outside. And I take the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, there's not a lot of, of background to those words. If you try to trace them down, according to a friend of mine who did a study and wrote a paper which I read, uh, it's hard to find a precedent for them. Uh, anger in, in Acts 7, when they were stoning Stephen, uh, they're grinding their teeth. But it seems to me to represent extreme emotion. 
And uh, the weeping is as a part of deep regret in the Middle East. Uh, you see it um, displayed in weddings, I, uh, funerals, I hear, maybe some weddings, <laughs> but funerals, I hear. And they even hire a professional weepers to come. So it, it's a big deal to show uh, sorrow and grief. And the gnashing of teeth could just mean uh, deep regret also as well. We have to remember when we're interpreting a parable to keep our eyes on the main point and not, I think, to get hung up on making every part of it walk and work. Uh, some pieces are there just to get the story across. And I, so in my opinion, here's a man who's not prepared. He comes before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, he's, he's, at the, he's in the wedding. He's maybe at the feast, but he's sitting on the outer edges. I'm going to do something a little risky here. I want to use an example from our culture. Uh, I fly a lot of international flights. That's where I see about 90% of my movies. <laughs> and they start to run out of movies. So I sometimes watch ones I wouldn't recommend to others. And I wouldn't recommend this one because it's got some elements in it that are, are not really cool for Christians. But it's called Table 19. And it's about a woman who fell into disfavor with a man, but she was invited to the wedding. So she's put out on Table 19, which is way in the back of the room with several other outcasts from the guy's life. He invited them there to be polite uh, because they had been a part of his life, but they were sitting way on the outer edge of the wedding and nobody knew who they were. Nobody was paying attention to them. And, and, and the main wedding part, of course, was sitting under the spotlight in the front of the, you know, and, and, and they were the focus of attention. I can't help but think of that, that illustration from the movie called Table 19 when I think of this parable that uh, it's not gonna be an unpleasant experience. I mean, you're invited to the wedding, you're there at the wedding, you just don't get the best seat. And you're getting the seats that are you know, kind of in the dark, kind of, uh, and I think we should think of darkness not so much as a spatial uh, situation, but a, more of a spiritual experience. Um, yeah, they're just not enjoying the, the feast as much as others would perhaps. It's, I don't see it as a punitive thing as, as much as just reaping the consequences of uh, irresponsibility in this life because uh, the, the teaching of the New Testament on the judgment seat of Christ teaches that there are negative consequences. Um, you're going to be judged in your body for things that were good and bad, Second uh, Corinthians uh, 5.10. And there's going to be shame, First John 2.28, and uh, shame and regret at, at his coming if we don't pre prepare for it. And that's what this is talking about, I think. There's going to be some who said, wow, he, here he is, and I look what I'm doing, or look what I haven't done. And, and that will echo into, I think, um, the wedding feast in the kingdom, where they will be happy to be there. I don't want to take that away from them. Um, there will be some shame. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know long, how long the wedding feast lasts. There's some unanswered questions. Heaven will be a wonderful experience for them, but it will be a more wonderful experience for those who paid a price to be there. Uh, not, not to be there, but to, to inherit the riches and blessings of it through their suffering and sacrifice and commitment. I love your uh, 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 picture of Table 19. I've never seen the movie. Uh, uh, based on your recommendation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't well, I be watching it. There's but. probably language in it. You know, there's I don't think there's nudity in it, but there, I think there's marijuana in it. <laughs> That's all I can remember. <laughs> but it, it was a very clear visual illustration of, of what, you know, 
most likely is being spoken of here by Jesus, you know? And uh, so that really provides a lot of clarity as far as that's concerned as well. So, and I just want to say one, one of the reasons I, I kind of lean towards it's a, this applying to the church and the judgment seat is that these people were surprised by the Lord's coming. Whereas if it was the Jewish nation, they should be able to time it by uh, uh, things like the, uh, the beginning of the tribulation or the midpoint of the tribulation uh, in Matthew 24, Daniel 9, 27. They, they should not be surprised by the coming of the Lord. They have it down uh, just about to the day. So, but the rapture, on the other hand, is imminent and can occur at any time. And they're all surprised and unprepared. So that makes me think it's the church, applies to the church. No, I'm with you. I, I totally understand and, and get that aspect of it. I like how you painted that picture uh, really clearly on that. <clears throat> so really getting to the main things of why I wanted to interview you specifically about antinomianism and some of the charges against free grace theology is now we're going to start getting into uh, some of the, you know, attacks, if you will, uh, against the position which I hold as well, you know, as a free grace believer. But one of the charges in, w- against free grace is people like Matt Dillahunty, who's the host of the Atheist Experience, who uh, claims he, he grew up and he was a Christian for a while, but then he said he, he left his faith, and now he's a, a really strong advocate for atheism. And seeing stuff like this, like people that claim they were Christians once and they turn into Satanism, things like that. Now, one of the arguments against free grace is that, uh, how can these people be going to heaven if they're literally, if they're a Satanist working for Satan? Uh, people see this as a huge flaw within the free grace position. How would you counter that argument or have you actually had to counter that argument? Well, let me see where to start on that one, because you use the term working for Satan. There are Christians who are working for Satan whenever we sin, you know, get behind me, Satan. Jesus said to Peter, and uh, you can be of the devil in First John uh, 3, uh, and I think that's referring to when you do evil deeds, you're representing Satan, not God. So so let me change that term to instead of working for, but worshiping. How, how, how about that? Okay, worshiping, let's go to the extreme. Uh, I, I have not listened to Delahunty. I don't know him, but you did say the word he claims to be a Christian. So let's start there. I don't assume anybody's a Christian until I talk to him and 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 ask them why they say they were a christian uh, it it could be that he is could be that he is not so i always would start there and make my judgment that's all i can do is make my best judgment based on what he tells me but let's assume he's a christian and now he's an atheist it's not unheard of i've actually heard of people who have gone through seminary and 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 been in ministry and claim to be an atheist personally i don't think there's any such thing as a genuine atheist the best they can say is that they're an agnostic. You have to be an atheist. You have to know everything to know that there's no God. Well, nobody can know everything. So they, you can, the best they can do is claim to be an agnostic. You know that as an apologist. So, so he's an agnostic, okay? Claims to be an atheist. Personally, I don't think there's such thing as an atheist. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Not the fool believes in his heart there is no God. So a person can say anything and do anything. Um and sometimes, you know, I think people fall into sin. I'm step a little bit of the thinking backwards. People fall into sin. And I once heard someone say that a man's morality dictates his philosophy. And if a person wants to live a, a sinful lifestyle, it's very convenient to become an atheist or 
whatever you want to call themselves. It's very easy to get rid of God if you want to do whatever you want to do. So that could be a, a motive in some professed atheist life. But let's get back to the question. Um, can an atheist turn, uh, can a Christian, let's say a genuine true Christian, uh, turn around and worship Satan? Um, again, we're dealing with a hypothetical and an extreme situation. We could, we could reframe it and say, can a genuine Christian continue to lie? Can a genuine Christian continue to get drunk? I mean, so we, we can do that, but we're talking about extreme cases of apostasy. I understand that. Apostasy means to fall away from something or depart from something. But the word apostasy itself implies that you were once there in order to depart. So uh, those who fall away, fall away from something. Um, so it very well could be that they apostatize. But take an example like Solomon from the Old Testament. Solomon lived a godly life. My goodness, he gave us some good scripture. At the end of his life, he was an idolater and 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 what? Was it 300 wives and 600 concubines or something like that? Uh, and worshiping idols, they led him astray. And yet he died. And I don't know that many people would say Solomon's not in heaven. An author of our scripture is not in heaven. Uh, he truly apostasy. Worship Satan. Maybe he did as he worshiped those idols. You know, so you have that example. Um, Peter, who denied the Lord. Christians can do extreme things. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, Titus 2. Um, you have people who shipwreck their faith, it says. Uh, who, uh, if, you're, if you're around in pastoral ministry long enough, you soon realize that Christians are capable of doing anything. Because even though we are new people in Christ, we can, we can always serve, go back and serve sin. We have that capacity to do that. And sin's grooves are carved deep into our nature. We have a new nature, but we have a choice to serve which nature. And if we choose the wrong one, I think we're capable of anything. My goodness, last week I was, uh, I interviewed four podcasts, a, uh, a man who became, who dealt drugs for a cartel, you know, was flying them all over the country mega millions and after he became a christian he continued to do it so <laughs> that's how he that's the only way he knew to make money in fact i could tell you two stories about people like that um but he didn't fall away from the faith uh, i'm just saying that christians are capable the possibility of falling away from the faith is a real possibility and i think that's what hebrews is all about now, this would take a whole book study but i think the book of hebrews is telling us about a group of people, Christians, genuine Christians, Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, who were tempted to go back under Judaism to escape Roman persecution because Jude the Jews were known and a known entity by the Romans, but they didn't know this Christian sect. And so they, they were killing them uh, like Nero did in the persecutions, and they saw them as a new threat. Um, and so they were tempted to go back and identify with the Jewish nation and fall away from the Christian faith and not go forward into maturity. And that's what the whole context of some of these warnings is, is growing, going forward into maturity. And uh, so in effect, those who fall away are denying Christ, trampling underfoot the son of God, considering the blood of the covenant, you know, a common thing. Those are very serious errors. Let's talk about worshiping Satan. Let's take it to the extreme, trampling underfoot the cross of Christ, 
But the meaning for that is if you go back into Judaism, I guess I'm getting into a passage we might want to talk about Hebrews 6, but if you if you go back to Judaism, you're saying that you're identifying with the ones who killed Christ and you're saying he deserved to die. You're counting his cross as worthless and useless and nothing. So it's a very serious sin. And that's why Hebrews has very serious warnings, five of them. And you know, the interesting thing about that is people interpret them in different ways. Uh, some people interpret the consequence of the warning as a destruction of Jerusalem and you'll be killed if you're identifying with the Jews. Some uh, say that the warnings in Hebrews are um, a death, physical death. Uh, those are possibilities, but the fact that the author doesn't tell us exactly what he's talking about scares me even more. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so the I don't think he ever really defines what he's talking about. And I think he does that like a parent with a child. You better clean your room or else you're going to be sorry. Now that's a little scarier than I'm not going to give you ice cream. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Uh, you alluded to it. So why don't we just tackle this passage in Hebrews? Uh, if you would like to Hebrews six, four through six, uh, where the author of I'd Hebrews... say one more thing before we depart the apostasy nope. question, nope. because it, nope. that is a tough no, one. I'm just answer. kidding. Yeah, no, no of that, course. That is a tough one to answer. I understand, you know, we get all emotionally wrapped up in somebody who would deny our Lord, who we know or think are, is a Christian. But I always take them to 2 Timothy 2.13. Though we um, are faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's meant to be an encouragement. Some people take it as God is faithful to judge them with hell. But it's in a passage that's meant to encourage. God is going to keep his promise of eternal life even when we're faithless. And the word is apostua, which means unbelieving. So even when we stop believing, God is still faithful because God is not a liar. He makes a promise and stick to it. That's what I want to say. Second Timothy 2.13 is really my go-to passage for apostates. Amen. I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up too, uh, because that, that's a huge verse. Uh, really, just explaining the magnificent grace of God and the love of God. And then again, when you were talking about antinomianism or necronomianism, the fact that a lot of people ignore that there is a judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat judgment, whatever the case is, that. Christians, we're all going to give an account, you know, and I don't think it's going to be as pleasant as a lot of people think it is at that day, you know, saying, okay, what have you done since uh, I gave you eternal life? You, you've squandered all of it. You lived idolatrous, uh, stuff like that. And there's going to be some shame, like you said, remorse. But so you were alluding to it. I just want to read the passage. And uh, I've heard, obviously, like, many different interpretations of this verse and this passage. And I'm curious, as far as your thoughts in Hebrews six, it says uh, verse four, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. A lot of qualifiers there that if they should fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So uh, what is your take on this? Uh, a lot of interpretations as far as this passage. Does this mean, uh, obviously, you don't believe that if someone falls away or apostatizes that they can never get saved again. Uh, but could you just elaborate a little bit what some of the basic under interpretations are and what one do you hold most to this? Is this just a hypothetical if it were possible type deal? 
Um, your sound got a little garbled, but I, you're asking me, is this just a hypothetical deal? Uh, that is what the way usually the strong Calvinists would interpret it, that hypothetically, if you fall away, well, that's what some of them do, um, which they cannot, because if true believers don't fall away. Um, some people see that as a genuine, this is confusing to me, but some people teach that it's a genuine warning, but they could never fall away. But Paul, but the, well, not Paul, the author of Hebrews just wants to show them that there are deep consequences and that will motivate them not to fall away, although they never could fall away. So it's a confusing argument to me. Now, the Arminian argument is that they're genuine Christians here and that he's uh, saying that they can lose their salvation. Um, the other, um, another argument that is used is that the author of Hebrews is switching audiences. He's sometimes addressing Christians. And then in the warning passages, he's not addressing Christians. That's a very, very weak argument. He calls them beloved. He, he lists the things that you just read as evidences of their faith. He's trying to remind them of their experience of Christ. Every good Arminian would agree with you that they're talking to genuine Christians. They don't ever argue that. Some Calvinists have tried to explain away those terms. Well, they tasted, you know, of the word of God. They didn't really appropriate it. They just tasted it. They play on the words like that. And that's really, that's really uh, pre pressing the argument too much. So I think the passage is best understood against what he's been writing about all the time is the history of the Jews and especially Kadesh Barnea in chapters three and chapter four of Hebrews, where they hardened their hearts and they didn't enter into uh, the promised land. Okay. And you remember that generation, Numbers 14, was refused entry. They could not, even if they repented, they still could not enter the land. So if the, and they, this is how it would apply, if these Jewish Christians turned back to Judaism, um, and it, he says in verse one that they're not laying again the foundation of repentance. Um, he's leaving that behind. They, so they had, had repented or changed their mind about the law and, and, and believed in Jesus Christ as their savior. So when he uses the word repentance again, he can't renew them to repentance. I think what he's saying is you've, you've been there, done that. You have no excuse now. You know that your works can't save you. And you, so if you go back to Judaism, uh, there, there's nothing there for you. You have no other argument left because you already know better that Jesus is better. And our whole argument in Hebrew is Jesus is better. And, um, and if you fall away, speaking of apostasy, um, it's impossible um, to renew them to repentance. In other words, God, God doesn't give do-overs. He didn't give that generation that wouldn't enter the promised land or trust God. He wouldn't give them a do-over. He didn't give Esau a do-over, even though Hebrews 12 says he, he sought it with tears when Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. He repented and regretted it, uh, but God couldn't restore him. That was a done deal. Um, so there, Moses didn't enter the promised land. You know, God couldn't un did or didn't undo that. I guess God can do anything, but he didn't undo that. There are some things and choices that we make have consequences that follow us severely in this life and in the next life. And that's what I think the warnings in Hebrew is trying to tell us. 
And we don't get do-overs in some, some things. I mean, God, we can always be forgiven. We can always be restored. But, that, but we can't make up for what has been lost in opportunity and time and maturity. Because the whole context of this is maturity. If you look at chapter 5 uh, and, and, and the whole, really the whole book is about going forward in maturity. I like to use this illustration. Uh, well, I change it probably every time. But let's say that there's a, there's a, a football team. And uh, they start out training real hard with the two a days in the summertime. And, you know, uh, Joe sticks with it and uh, he's working real hard. And they, and they approach the season in the first game. Of, Joe decides, you know what, this is too hard. I think I, uh, I'm going to goof off on the side. I'll still, I'll still come to practice, but I'm going to drink, smoke dope, you know, hang out late all night. And so he does that. And then he shows up for, for practice. And, uh, uh, but he's obviously suffering in his skills, his abilities, his strength. And, and whereas the coach was able to start him in some games, now five games later, this is starting to take its toll. And he's, he's on the bench. And he says, coach, why don't you start me anymore? Coach says, you, you've wasted your time. You've wasted your life. You've wasted your strength. And we can't go, we can't go back and do the season over again. You, you, you have to start from where you are. Right? I forgive you. I'll restore you. But I'm not going to put you on first string. Right now, you've lost that opportunity. It's impossible to bring you back and do it over again. And so I think the Hebrews here, who he's trying to get them to understand solid food and to uh, go on in the Christian life, persevere in their faith. And he's saying, if you don't do that and you, and you go back, I, I can't bring you back and make up for that lost time, renew you to repentance, I think. Is the phrase that uh, addresses that. No, I like that. That was pretty clear. And again, the illustration, the power of illustrations is just something because you could take deep theological truths and just put in the, in the backdrop of something we're familiar with today to get that principle. You know, I know Jesus was a master of that, obviously, but uh, that really helped provide clarity as far as like their consequences, you know, and still in the family you're forgiven, but it's like, me as a pastor, if I were to, you know, commit some grievous sin and, and, you know, I seek repentance and forgiveness and, and I can get all that, but I'm probably going to lose, you know, pastoral position. There's going to be some consequences that are still going to have to happen, you know, so everything's fine, reconciled, things like that, but there's still consequences that are going. And the fact that it's tied into one of the he warning passages in Hebrews, you know, I appreciate the clarity on that. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, uh, that, that's the best I can do on the, off the cover. Let me just say passages like Hebrews 6 and some of these other problem passages, I'm giving you, you know, a kind of a summary type of response. But like in Hebrews, I've written a, an article for Bibliotheca Sacra, DTS's scholarly journal, uh, discussing things more in depth. Uh, and for other journals and on my website, you can get a lot more in depth with the arguments and the details and the comparison of other scriptures and so forth so i'm not giving you all the arguments just kind of a summary picture yeah definitely like i said we'll have the links in the description of this and on the podcast things like that so anybody that wants to check those out i encourage you to because yeah i'm gonna provide you know full justification and, and full thought process because it's kind of hard to uh, just speak about it and then people think about it while someone's talking it's so much easier to read it and map it out 
So uh, staying within certain passages, Colossians chapter one, verses 22 and 23, uh, there's a passage that says that one can be unblameable in the sight of God if if they continue in the faith. Faith, verse 23. Uh, does this mean that our our eternal life, our salvation, justification requires the continual belief in Colossians chapter one, if we continue? Yeah, this is an example of one passage that I actually wrote an article for also for, for Bibliotheca uh, Sacra Journal and uh, for Dallas Theological Seminary. So I have a full treatment of this article there, this passage there. Um, yeah, the if is troublesome to people. It looks like you need to continue uh, to be faithful in order to be reconciled. But let's take a closer look at it. Let's Verse 21 makes it clear that those who were once alienated uh, yet now he has reconciled in his body through flesh, now that, uh, through death, and that is, a, that is a done deed. He has reconciled, that's a past tense, uh, with present consequences. So uh, the death of Christ um, applied to us has saved us, and the purpose of that salvation is expressed in the next phrase, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, those, uh, this idea of presenting, uh, to understand the idea of presenting, I think we need to understand, again, bring in the, the judgment seat of Christ, where we are presented to him. That term is used, I think, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 or so forth, where it talks about presenting the bride of Christ um, to him in Ephesians 5 also. Um, so, I take it that the presentation here is not talking about their salvation, but their presentation to the Lord for their final evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And the terms holy and blameless are not absolute terms, but they're relative terms. In other words, because we know that because they're used of um, requirements for deacons and elders. And so a deacon is not entirely blameless. He's just relatively blameless compared to you and me. He's a good guy. Um, and above reproach. So those three descriptions mean somebody that is basically characterized as holy, blameless, and above reproach. It doesn't, they're not absolute terms. So let's keep that in our, our minds as we go on. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached every creature, etc. Um, now, does the if reply to reconciliation or presentation and i believe that the rec reconciliation is a done deal in the past tense but the purpose tense to present you is something in the future and i think what is in view when he says if is the future presentation of us believers at the judgment seat of christ that's why he reconciled us so he, we could be presented before Jesus Christ as a pure bride. Um, now, some people try to get around this. Now, would we would we see that as just looking back to like the nearest antecedent? As far as if you continue in, in the most recent thing he's talking about is the presentation. Well, it is it is a nearer antecedent. I don't know that that would be the the final argument in it, but uh, that's a, that's a good observation. A lot of people like to say that the first if is a first class condition and, and translated as sense, and some Bibles probably do, that if you're reconciled, 
you will be presented to God in salvation since you continue in the faith. But that's really a misunderstanding and misuse of the first class condition, if can be understood as something that is assumed true for the sake of argument, not necessarily is true, but assumed true for the sake of argument. So for the sake of argument, if they continue faithful, they will be presented to Christ, holy and blameless, um, because they have been grounded and steadfast. And they're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Uh, so you see, they, they have the hope of the gospel, which in hope is not a wish. It means a, a, an expectation of a future. Uh, it's like a future faith in the future. So they have that hope. And if they don't move away from that, if they, they keep that in mind, let it shape their lives, and they stay grounded and steadfast in that hope, uh, they will continue in the faith. That's what he's trying to tell them. Um, so the main thing is to see that if, first of all, as he's using it for the sake of argument, that if they don't remain, if they continue in the faith, they will be presented blameless. Uh, if they continue to be grounded and steadfast and keep their focus on the gospel. And um, that's what hope does. It produces godliness. And in fact, it's in the earlier passages. Uh, he talks about their love in verse one four. He heard of their. We we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, and then verse five because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So there he's saying hope, if you keep focused on it, will produce love and faith. You see, and he's saying the same thing. I think in this passage he's saying keep focusing on that hope, and you'll continue faithful. And you'll be presented blameless before Christ. Um, so that's how I, that's how I explain it. Um, he's not I talking, like that. Yeah, he's not talking about their reconciliation. That's a done deal. It's assumed. Because even like if we were to look at Hebrews chapter ten, uh, as we see uh, the day drawing near, that we're to what encourage and exhort believers, and and if we have this hope, not like oh I hope this happens, but this hope like I expect this to happen. I'm trusting you know Christ has come back, rapture, this and that. Uh, we shouldn't be living by fear. We should be living by love and expectation, and, and uh, knowing that you know while we're still here, there's still work to be done. Yeah, that's good. So uh, the last passage I really wanted to talk about is, is another one. I, again, there could be so many that we can talk about, but I think this is one. These ones are ones that are fewer discussed uh, from my understanding and my studies. But could you explain 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where Paul says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be re reprobates. Uh, what is Paul mean here when he says, work out your own salvation to see if you are in the faith? Is this saying that you have to examine yourself to see if you have faith to confirm, uh, like what Lordship Advocates or Calvinists say, uh, genuine salvation? Okay, uh, this is a troublesome passage uh, because it's misused. I don't know if you meant to do it, but you said work out your salvation to see whether you're in the faith, but uh, you might be thinking of um, Philippians 2. 11 and 12. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Examine yourselves, whether you be like examining yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you. All right. Well, here's here's my take on this passage. And here's here's another instance. I have articles on this and it's in my books. But here's an instance that the people have just used this as a club to beat people. 
uh, over the head and say, you need to really, did you really believe? Are you really, you really have enough works to prove that you're saved? Okay. Well, how can anybody ever know if they really believed, uh, you know, with their whole heart? What does that mean? And how many works would prove that I'm saved? And so this is used, and I've heard preachers even write and probably say, it's good to have doubts. It's good to question your salvation. I never see Paul questioning their salvation anywhere in any of the epistles that he writes, much less in 2 Corinthians. In fact, it is assumed from 1 Corinthians through 2 Corinthians that they are believers. You are sanctified. You are washed. You're justified, he says in 1 Corinthians 6. So that is assumed. Uh, so what's going on here? Um, examine yourselves. What does that mean? Uh, actually, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. First of all, notice that he doesn't say examine your faith. He doesn't say examine your works. He says examine yourselves uh, to see whether you're in the faith. How do you know when he says in the faith? People take that two different ways. Uh, even within the free camp, free grace camp, some people understand it as, are you walking in faith in Christ as a, an experiential sanctification thing? Um, I take it more objectively as the faith is the Christian truth. If uh, examine yourself to see whether you're in that Christian truth, that when you trusted in Christ, you entered into that body of truth. But what are they, what are they supposed to test themselves about? And the test, the idea of test, uh, means to um, be approved. Uh, do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you unless you are disqualified or disapproved? Uh, what, they are to, what they are to look at is, in, is Christ in you or not? That's the test. That's not their works, not their faith. Is Christ in you or not? Now we know from 1 John 5, 11 through 13 that whoever believes in him uh, has Christ in him. And, other passages we could go to as well. Um, let's see, do I have another one? But anyway, in the in the faith that I take as being in in the Christian truth that belief in Christ brought you into. Here's the greater context of this passage as he summarizes and comes to the end of his letter. In First Corinthians, he had to defend his apostleship in certain ways, uh, and he hinted at things more subtly. In 2 Corinthians, he comes full bore at them, saying, I am an authentic apostle. I'm not one of these cheap, false, phony super apostles. And he really lays it on them. And uh, back in chapter three, what Paul is reminding them of, it's, it's a very emotional epistle. And uh, he, he's trying to restore his relationship to them. So he reminds them in chapter three, verse one, do we begin again to commend ourselves? And do we have to, in other words, do I have to justify myself again to you? Do I have to fill out a new resume? I mean, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation or letters of commendation from you? Do I need to get formal letters from other people to testify to my authenticity as an apostle? Then he says in verse three, or verse two, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is the heart. Paul says, you want something that commends me to you as the real thing? You are my letter of commendation. You are my proof that I'm real. So when he comes to, and, he, and then he goes throughout the book arguing about 
a little bit sometimes using sarcasm and irony about uh, how much he suffered, you know, uh, for them and um, implying that the super apostles didn't suffer for them. So when he comes to um, chapter 13 and he's summarizing things, here's how I take it. He says, starting in verse uh, three, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, they're, they're looking for proof of Christ speaking in him. Is he the real thing? Is he authentic? Because the, the false apostles are saying he's not, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. In other words, my work is evident in you. Um, Christ is mighty in them. He's reminding them that Christ is in them. For though he's crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall also live with him by the power of God toward you. In the same way, our experience of Christ will manifest itself towards you. So examine yourselves. Look at yourselves to see whether you are in this faith that I taught you. And then test yourselves. How? Not by looking at works or your faith. Is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? It's a rhetorical question, I take it. Of course, Christ is in them. He's already affirmed that all through the epistle. He said, you're our letters written in, um, written on hearts, not, not on stone. So, of course, Christ is in them. Um, unless, indeed, you are disqualified. Uh, and I think he's using a little sarcasm here. Unless you don't pass the test. Um, you yourself don't pass the test. Um, but I trust that you will know that you're not disqualified. How will they know that, that they're not disqualified from the test? Because Paul himself taught them the truth. They believe the truth. And so he's using a little irony here. He's saying, instead of examining me to see if Christ is really in me doing his thing, why don't you examine yourselves? And if Christ is in you, then how did he get there? You got it. Got there. He got there from me. He says in First Corinthians fifteen, that which I received, I delivered to you. You believed it, and it's the truth in which you stand. He preached the gospel to them. So if they are Christians and Christ is in them, where'd you get that from? You want another illustration? <laughs> Let's say I claim to know nuclear science, and somebody's questioning my my uh, integrity, and so we're given a final exam and class. Uh, I'm in a student, a nuclear science class. I don't even know what nuclear science means. Okay, let's use that as an example. And I take the test and I know everything. I get an A. And the student next to me copies off of my exam. Now, if somebody questions my integrity about and my authenticity and my knowledge about nuclear science, uh, especially this guy who copied off my paper, you know, and, and he gets an A. I would say, you don't think I know the subject? How did you get an A? You got it because of me. How do you know your crisis in you? Uh, how do you know I crisis in me? He's in you. Where did you get Christ from? My pre I preached the gospel to you. So if you look at the whole context of 2 Corinthians 11, uh, you see that he's being charged as being a false apostle, and he's arguing for his authenticity. And and then their their question at the end, he's saying, "Look, don't 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 examine me. You're wasting your time. Examine yourselves. If Christ is in you, how do you get there? Through me. It's a rhetorical question, is the way I take it.
and a little bit of irony, a little bit of sarcasm, which he's been using all through the book anyway. But you really read the whole book and it just kind of dumps out in the end at that conclusion and that little um, expression of uh, rhetorical question and irony picks together. Now, other no, Christians are a little differently. I'm sorry, say what? Other other free grace uh, people believe understand a little differently that he's asking, are you genuinely walking in the faith? And that's an okay interpretation. But I think when you read the whole book of First Second Corinthians, you see him constantly trying uh, to argue for his authenticity as an apostle. No, that that makes clear sense, especially because you mentioned it earlier, you know, chapter verses aren't inspired, you know, they're written, you know, well after the canonization. And then the fact of uh, looking at not just the immediate context, or but looking at the actual book context, what is the purpose of this letter? And most of the times, you know, when people are trying to study a passage, you know, they're not going to read the entire letter, you know, some letters like third John and the book of Jude, second John, they're easier to read in one setting, but a 13 chapter uh, letter to second Corinthians, you know, it's kind of hard for people to read all the way through to remember the entire context. But once you're talking about in chapter three, where again, he, he's trying to argue his own apostleship and then summarizing everything in 13 and then looking at verse three and 13, since you seek a proof of Christ in me, you know, then he says, look at you, look at yourself. This is the same sort of principle or idea he spoke of. And I think it was chapter three that you took us to, you yeah, know, chapter three is very influential, but let me read chapter 10 verse seven to you. Okay. Saying the same thing. He says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, just, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. In other words, if you belong to Christ, that means I belong to Christ because I preach him to you. Um, so, I mean, it goes through the book. And there, one of the reasons it's hard to see that in context, because Second Corinthians is not a, not a logically organized book. It's more of an emotionally organized book. Uh, second, first Corinthians is easy. He addresses one topic after another. Romans is easy. It moves along in its logic. Second Corinthians, he's just trying to win their hearts over with expressions of great emotion and, and memories and history and and so forth. So it's it's harder harder to put the pieces together. It's like I'm teaching it right now at a church, so um, it's it's really hard to make a concise logical outline of it. It can be done, but it's a lot harder than Romans or First Corinthians. I can understand because when we're speaking from uh, a structure or an outline, it's a lot clearer when we're speaking from emotion, we tend to ramble. We tend to go ahead and have things not in a logical order. And I'm not saying Paul's rambling, but I'm just trying to draw an, an analogy uh, from our emotional side and how it comes across. So that's excellent. You know, I appreciate that. You said a lot of these verses, your, your in-depth deep dive is on Bibliotheca. Uh, DTS journals, right? Well, a couple of articles. I think I got about three articles there, and then I've got some in the other journals. And on my website, you can find most of it too. Okay, excellent. Now, one last question I have. Okay, so uh, passages like Matthew chapter seven, you know, beware of false prophets, you know. Uh, and he says, but, you know, a good tree can't bear forth, you know, evil fruit and evil tree, good fruit stuff like that. It always seems hard when I'm trying to explain those passages that, you know, this is how it's supposed to be understood, but 
it's really difficult to get the other person to see it the way it's trying to be clearly explained. Uh, it just in your experience in this last question, uh, in your experience, how is it, how are we able to gain ground in explaining passages, especially if it's passages that they've held on to for years? Uh, how do we get clarity or is that really just us speaking and the, them working through the Holy spirit to understand, is it all spiritual? You know, what would you give just from a practical application? Understand? You're asking a general question, just using Matthew seven as an example. And exactly. That's a good example yes. Because that is a key passage, which some people have written books uh, saying that Jesus taught uh, somebody graduated from my school graduated. Dallas Theological Seminary writes a book that says Jesus taught salvation by works based on this passage because they don't understand what fruits means in the passage and they don't understand Jesus was talking about false prophets. So to answer your question, how do we get them to see? It's it's the first rule of Bible study. Context, context, first, second, third rules. Context, context, context is what I tell people. And that's why when I wrote my book about these difficult passages, I didn't quote all these authors. In fact, one, one commentator or uh, reviewer criticized me for not having many footnotes. And I explained in the beginning of the book, I want people to see that the Bible is the best commentator on the Bible. And if you, if you take things in passage and re, uh, in context and really observe the context, most questions will answer themselves. Just as an example, it, he says, this is a test of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. So first of all, there's, there's a clue. He's not talking to all Christians. He's talking about false prophets. And then the whole idea of fruits. What does fruit refer to? Well, you, you got to go to Matthew 12, and he uses the word fruit there as what is taught, teaching. Then you go to Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Both chapters talk about false prophets are tested by what they teach. So fruits in this context and comparing it to other scriptures in, this, in the Bible, speaks of what is taught. Because they look like sheep, they sound like sheep, uh, but what, what is it that they're teaching? So they, they act like sheep. What are they teaching? That's, that's what I think fruit refers to. And I'm only going back to that because I'm just, as an illustration that you, we have to do our Bible study. It's just hard work. Instead of just taking somebody else's word for it, we have, we have to look at the context, compare it from scripture to scripture, if you have to go back to the Old Testament, even for the background of what a prophet is and how's a prophet tested. Uh, so that's how I explain it to somebody. But it's it's context, context, context. In fact, that's how I think I explained all the passages that you asked me today. I, I immediately talked, went to the bigger context. You sure did. And uh, uh, so say you're trying to explain the context and, and, and they're still not understanding, getting caring, still holding on to their passage, understanding, you know, do you just leave it at that and, and just pray for them? Or like, <laughs> what do you do? Well, you can go to some logical arguments. How much, for example, how much fruit do I need to have? If, if that's your interpretation, how much fruit do I need to have to prove I'm a Christian? Who's got the list? And then what is a fruit? And uh, what is a fruit or a good work? What is a good work? Nobody ever seems to define that in this argument. How many works do I have to have? How often do they have to last? How long do they have to last? How do we quantify it? It's all relative. It's all subjective. Uh, so I sometimes will bring that argument up to them to see that it's impossible to prove your salvation by your works. What about the Mormon that has better works than I do? 
you know, the Jehovah's Witness who lives a more outwardly holy life than I do. So what do you do with that? So you can use logical arguments like that. So like, and this is just something personal for me, you know, it's just something I thought of, you know, through the course of the interview, like even take like for Colossians one, where we talked about if you continue or second Corinthians 13, when we talked about examining yourselves and whether someone has a Calvinistic view, worship view, whatever the case is, and they're just not seeing the context of that, you know, and they're not talking about works and stuff like that or fruit, you know, at what point would you just be like, all right, let's agree to disagree and just be done? Or is that the best practice to do with that situation? I think sometimes you have to, uh, you've done all that you feel that you can do. Um, but it, you know, I just, I just direct people to do good Bible study practices. Um, when I go overseas and I'm usually facing an Armenian audience that believes you can lose your salvation and eternal security can be a real hot issue with them and they really can give pushback. I don't start by taking this verse here and this verse here like they will. They'll say, what about this verse? What about this verse? You've fallen from grace. You've fallen. You could possible to renew your repentance. I don't argue it that way. You know what I do is I teach the book of Romans and Romans walks you down this pathway. And by the time you get to the end of chapter eight, you're locked up with nowhere to go except to agree that God has loved me forever and I can't, I can't get rid of him. <laughs> and, uh, and I have just seen people jump out of their seats when they understand that. And what I'm saying to you is that it's context that makes a difference. Paul laid out the book of Romans in a logical way and, and seals the deal in Romans chapter eight. He takes them to the mount, mountaintop of grace and they have nowhere else to go um, when they understand the argument. So it's not just one verse here, one verse there. It's always the power is in the word and in the context, in the proper context. Oh, that's good. I, I appreciate that. And that's, that's good insight and wisdom. Uh, as we're concluding this interview, is there any final thoughts you'd like to share? Anything you'd like to say uh, before we close up? Well, my passion uh, in my ministry is all about keeping the gospel clear. I'm an evangelist at heart, not a theologian, actually. I don't call myself a theological evangelist. I call myself an evangelistic theologian. And the reason I pursued theological studies was so I could be, be contribute to evangelism by keeping the gospel clear and helping pastors and teachers and evangelists and leaders around the world keep the gospel clear because they can then share a clear gospel in their culture, which is exactly what we were doing and involved in. So my passion is keep it, keep the gospel free, keep the gospel clear. And uh, I appreciate ministries like yours that are doing exactly that. And that's, uh, you know, one of the reasons we started the Free Grace Alliance as well. And that's what I'm all about. So thanks for having me on the program. Amen. I appreciate that. And I, I didn't get that uh, as far as the evangelism aspect, but I can definitely see it, especially by following your travels. And, and apparently you're, you're a hunter, you know, big game hunter, it looks like, and fisherman and all the other things. So it's, it's wonderful to follow your adventures on Facebook. So I appreciate that. So that's going to do it for this interview. Check out all the other videos we have in our Calvinism playlist and free grace theology, stuff like that. Uh, just, Again, the mischaracterization, misrepresentation of what free grace is. It is not nothing about uh, ignoring the law. It's nothing about living licentious or anything like that. It's understanding that the grace of God is freely given to those that believe. And it's a one and done type deal, if you will. And the fact that those Christians that are 
trampling on the grace of God and, and uh, living not in light of it. There's a fearful looking day of judgment at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for all Christians, but those that are not living the life they should uh, with their salvation. Uh, it, it's going to be tough for them, you know, but praise God, they're still going to be saved. They're still going to be into heaven and, and eternal life. But I think a lot of times people ignore or undervalue that judgment seat of Christ in the ramifications it will have. But like Dr. Bing said, uh, we don't work uh, for salvation. We work because of salvation. There's a big difference in the motivation there. And so I encourage you to check out Grace Life Ministries. Uh, the links are all in the descriptions. Uh, we got some of the books as far as Dr. Bing wrote as well. And so check those out. And uh, just thank you for uh, following this interview. So until next time, God bless. <laughs>